You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I got a uh, podcast. I want to tell you about it's a new show it's called we love you and so can you and uh if you are someone who occasionally feels down i.e if you are anyone in the world if you're a human being uh there might be something for you to get out of the show it's part reality show part self-love school if you know the show by the book you're going to love this new one it's also hosted by Kristen meinzer and jolenta greenberg and on the show they uh send listeners on their own self-help journeys and help them make over some huge part of their life. Maybe it's jumping back into the dating world. Maybe it's starting a new career. Maybe it's just not feeling like a total schmuck all the time. Uh, all kinds of things are featured on the show, all kinds of people. You'll have fun. You'll laugh. You'll maybe cry. So go listen to We Love You and So Can You in this podcast app. You are currently listening to the show. And another show that you could check out is called You Can't Make This Up. It's a podcast done by Netflix. It's a companion to all the incredible documentaries that Netflix does. Each episode features a rotating interviewer talking with someone involved in the making of a documentary. It's a monthly show, monthly podcast. The August episode is The Great Hack. And this interview you're about to hear actually appeared on You Can't Make This Up. Aaron was one of the interviewers, and uh, we just thought that it totally made sense for the long-form audience, too. So go check out those two shows. But for now, here's our show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff, Returned, and Max Linsky. Hey, team. Hey, you guys. Evan, it's good to have you back, man. Thank you. It's great to be with you guys. Aaron, who's on the show? This one is kind of a dream interview for me, although it is a little bit off the beaten path of this show. Um, it's a documentary filmmaker. His name is Jean-Xavier de Lestrade. Please, please send me all of the email about my pronunciation of his name. He is French. Also, incredible filmmaker behind The Staircase, which I think most people are familiar with now, although... When I saw it many years ago, it was a total unknown to me. And uh, it's a uh, true crime uh, documentary series that came out in 2004 uh, about the murder trial of um, Michael Peterson uh, and whether his wife was indeed murdered by him or fell down the stairs. Um, 
there's so, so much more to the story than that, uh, but I won't give any of it away other than to say he returned to do an update on the series in 2013 and then Netflix picked up another few updates on the story in 2018. If you have not seen the series, I would say start from the very beginning, uh, book a dozen or so hours of time, and then listen to this interview. Uh, But it's pretty fascinating to talk to someone who has followed a single story for this long and this deeply to the point where he is a pretty major figure in the story. Man, I'm excited about this one. I feel like we should start having more documentary filmmakers on the show. I'm game. I feel like the um, both the true crime boom and uh, all these streaming services um, going pretty heavy on the documentaries means there's um, more documentary stuff to talk about than ever. So um, if you if you have a documentary filmmaker you'd like to uh, hear on the show, send us an email. Yeah, listeners, hold us to this at longform.org. If, if we hold us yeah, to if it. we just say something uh, on the intro like yeah we should have more documentary filmmakers and then we never do it. Send us an email and uh, tell us we're assholes. About to get a lot of email. (laughs) Uh, If you've got to send a lot of email, there's no better way to do it than with MailChimp. You can't be running a email newsletter from your Gmail box. It won't work. You need a dedicated, efficient, fairly priced uh, email newsletter service like MailChimp. We appreciate them for bringing us the show. And also, uh, read the summary. Yeah, we, we appreciate them for being such fine people who support the arts They're doing a thing this summer. It's called Read This Summer. Uh, Every year, they select an author. This year, it's Jenna Wortham, who brings a group of writers to the Decatur Book Festival. That's over Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. But if you're looking for something to read, Jenna has uh, an incredible list of books. Go check it out. Go to readthissummer.com. I personally am going to be checking out the writers that Jenna selected at the Decatur Book Festival. Evan Ratliff. In my hometown. (laughs) Evan will be there too. Uh, go see Jenna's crew. Go see Evan. Uh, and thank MailChimp. They made it all possible. And now here's Aaron with Jean Xavier de Lestrade. The first um, movie of yours that was distributed in America is uh, Murder on a Sunday Morning. But I, I know from your Wikipedia page that you had done stuff before then. What drew you to documentary filmmaking in the first place? I think the very first documentary I um, I did uh, was just before Madonna Sunday Morning. It was a film about a young lawyer, a French woman, who went to uh, Rwanda to uh, defend uh, people who were accused of genocide. Because at the time, it was in 2000, uh, at the time, there was no lawyer in Rwanda to defend the people accused of genocide. And so many uh, people from outside the country were going there to defend these people. And so I followed during uh, three months a a very young um, defense lawyer in her work and to just to watch how you can defend this kind of people accused of having killed so many, many, many people. And uh, that was very, very interesting. 
you seem to gravitate towards lawyers as the subject of your movie. I mean, you could even say that The Staircase is equally about David Rudolph as it is about Michael Peterson. What fascinates you about lawyers, and why are they good subjects for films? Well, in fact, I have a law degree. I studied law during four years in college, and that was only after having that law degree that I did journalism studies, and I have been interested in documentaries and cinema. But I I have always been very focused or interested in the justice system because I think the justice system is one of the best way to look into a democracy, how that democracy is working or not working. And I try to do it in France, but in France it's very, very difficult to, <laughs> to shoot inside a courtroom, to follow lawyers. And so I went to the States. And you can say that the United States are the biggest democracy in the world. And uh, just to, um, to challenge that title, in a way, <laughs> I, I wanted to look at it through the justice system, how it works, and uh, is it uh, fair or not? What were your impressions when you first set foot in an American courtroom? What were the biggest surprises for you as you started to spend time around the American justice system? The biggest surprise is, and the biggest difference between a courtroom in Europe or especially in France or Italy or Spain than in, in the US. In France, you get the sense that in a courtroom, the judge is there to try to find the truth in a way. And it's not, of course, always easy. But that's the goal. When you, you go uh, in a U.S. courtroom, you immediately get the sense that it's not really about truth. It's more about a story against another story. It's more about storytelling, in fact. And that's why it's so great for filmmakers, because uh, in one hand, you have the GS story, in the other hand, you have the defense lawyer story. And especially in, in Michael Peterson's case, the DA was saying, okay, it's a murder. And the defense lawyer, David Rudolph, were saying, no, it's an accident, uh, fall down the stairs. So in a way, it's, it's uh, maybe the more compelling story or the more believable story by the jury will win. But at the end, we don't know if it's the truth or not. And it's a controversial uh, system. For you personally, uh, what made you make the switch from a law path to a journalism and then a documentary path? Or why did you not become a lawyer yourself? Well, because when I was a child, I was dreaming that one day I will tell stories with a camera. And, uh, but because um, my parents didn't really understand well, <laughs> that, <laughs> that desire that um, I studied first law, but I, I always kept in mind 
that I wanted to do uh, cinema, I wanted to do documentaries, I wanted to write dramas, and uh, that was really uh, my deepest desire. So the, the switch was quite easy, but I have to convince my parents that they had to pay two more years <laughs> in college. <laughs> Did you have filmmakers whose work you were like, this is the kind of stuff I want to do? Because at the time, like this kind of long form documentary series, there weren't a ton of them out there. Someone camping out in a courtroom for years filming. What were your inspirations as you launched a documentary career? Well, in France, we have a, a very, very talented uh, documentary filmmaker. His name is Raymond Depardon, and um, it's Cinema Verité. And um, at some point, he tried to put his camera inside the courtroom, and um, he, he did uh, one or two uh, films about uh, the justice system in France, and that was very inspiring. And in the U.S., you have... Wiseman. I have watched all Wiseman movies, and that was also very, very inspiring. His patience, uh, the ways he, he look at the institution, how the institution are working or not working. I remember, he, he, for example, he did um, documentaries about the, the police in Kansas City. Uh, he did documentaries uh, about the um, health system. Uh, he did documentary about an housing project. It, it has been very, very inspiring. How did the Michael Peterson story first come to you? How did you become aware of it? Well, that's a, a, long, a long story, but I try to tell you it, um, in a short way. Um, in fact, Murder on a Sunday Morning was in part produced by HBO. And uh, HBO was very happy with Murder on a Sunday Morning. And they really wanted to do another movie a little bit like uh, based on a, on a true story, legal system. And they asked me if I, will, I agree to do another movie like that. And I have to say that at the beginning, I, I said no, because it's so difficult to find a very good story. And uh, because when we start, you never know what will happen. And uh, we, in a way, we were a little bit lucky with Modern Sunday Morning. And uh, uh, <laughs> when you have to convoke the luck twice, it's becoming difficult. Uh, but they were very, uh, they put a pressure and say, okay, we really want another movie and try at least to find a, a story. And we, uh, we had a, a team, a kind of crew all around the States, maybe like 15 people. Most of them were journalists and uh, there were looking at in the courtroom, in the newspaper, everywhere to uh, find a case that could be interesting for me. And what I said to them was very simple because Modernist in the Morning was the case about a young African-American teenager who had been accused of having killed a woman and the mobile was about 
drug. And uh, I, I wanted to find a case who would be the opposite of murder on a Sunday morning. So I, I told the people that I, I wanted a case about a white guy, wealthy, known as his own community, and uh, a man was able to pay a private defense lawyer. And that was mainly the, the starting point. And it took, maybe we reviewed at least 400 different cases. And uh, suddenly, in January 2002, a journalist from uh, North Carolina sent us a mail in, in Paris, and uh, the mail was very simple, two lines. <laughs> uh, I have a case, a novelist, Michael Peterson, is accused of having killed his wife. He's well known. He ran for to be mayor in Durham, and uh, his uh, lawyer is David Rudolph, who is a very good lawyer. He's saying it's an accident, and that's all. So, well, interesting. <laughs> we took a flight, and uh, we went to meet David Rudolph first. And the day after David Rudolph, we met with Michael Peterson. And first of all, David Rudolph seems to be a very good character, very good lawyer, smart, and uh, very open. And uh, that was a good start. And so the day after, we met with Michael Peterson. And Michael Peterson appeared to be also a very good character. No so charming than David Rudolph, but you could immediately feel that there was like a mystery around this guy, something you couldn't catch immediately. You, you could feel that there was a strong intuition. I had that there was like ghost in the room uh, when you were <laughs> with him. And at some point, you have to trust your, your intuition or your, your deep feeling. And uh, so uh, I said, OK, OK, we are going to start to shoot. And we'll see in a month if there is a story or not. And at the beginning, when we start shooting, the goal was to do a two-hour documentary, like Modern Sunday Morning. Nobody was talking about doing a series, a uh, documentary series, because, uh, because it didn't exist at the time. And uh, there was no documentary series, true crime documentary series. So we start shooting, and I thought that in six months, the, the shooting of the documentary would have been finished. But uh, we stay uh, 22 months. <laughs> so... At the front end of these 22 months, you're in uh, Durham, North Carolina, very specific region of America. What did people make of a uh, Frenchman with a camera crew um, pushing its way into the courtroom each morning, interviewing people in the community? How did people receive you? That was uh, very interesting because people were very surprised. They were keep asking, why? Uh, a French documentary crew 
is staying there and following that case. Well, the case is quite interesting. Okay, but why did you choose that case? Why did you choose Durham? Why why are you there? And but they were quite open. But at the same time, in 2002-2003, that was the beginning of the the Iraqi war. And if you remember, at the time, the fries, when you, 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 you were going to a restaurant, there was always French fries. Free, freedom the, fries. And, and yes, yeah. and it became freedom fries because the French people were not, the, <laughs> were not with the Bush uh, administration going to war against Iraq. And so <laughs> people were quite open, but they were looking at us in, also in a way mm, not so friendly. Uh, but mainly it was a surprise. Why are you staying there? Why? Uh, you have no life? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the judge have been very open to us and very nice uh, because he allowed us really to shoot exactly like I, I, uh, I had in mind the, where I, I wanted to put the three cameras I wanted inside the courtroom. He allowed us to do that, and uh, that was really a key factor in the way we shoot the trial, and that was very important. This story has multiple giant twists in it. I think probably the biggest one for me was the the revelation of this other woman who had died after falling down the stairs. I wonder if you could tell me emotionally for you when this project that, as you said, was supposed to be six months long, when a giant, giant twist comes in like that, that is going to totally change the trial and the story you're telling. How did that feel for you as the filmmaker? Are you excited? Are you dreading how much longer you're going to have to film? Both, exactly. <laughs> we, when we start shooting, obviously, we had no clue about what will happen, and especially about the death of Elizabeth Ratliff in Germany 17 years ago. Uh, we didn't know. In fact, we learned about that with the prosecution. Because at the beginning, my goal was to shoot. I didn't really want to do a, a documentary film about only about a defense system or uh, the defense lawyers. I really wanted to do uh, to look at the case, the way the justice system will treat Michael Peterson. And so at the beginning, they allowed us to shoot and to work uh, with them. And uh, at some point, because they really wanted us to know, to believe that Michael Peterson was guilty, they said to us, but you don't know about the death of Elizabeth Radcliffe. Do you know how she died? No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I'm sure you are going to tell me, and it will be interesting. And um, that's the way we, we learn. And uh, of course, we, uh, we fell down from the share. Uh, I don't know if you, you said that in English, but uh, it's uh, it, that was obviously they changed 
or the perspective of the documentary. I knew at that point that I couldn't tell the story in two hours. We had so, so good material that I knew that we had to uh, create a new format, to invent a new format, uh, but not only a two-hour documentary. What has it been like in the uh, years since the original uh, episodes came out, seeing, particularly in the last few years, this boom in true crime storytelling, which often takes the format that uh, you pioneered with the staircase of the sort of multiple episode. Mm -hmm. There's something that you don't know at the beginning that's really going to change your uh, views midway. Well, uh, that was really interesting. And to tell you the truth, when we came back to HBO at the end of the shooting and we told them we can't do a two-hour documentary. It has to be an eight-hour documentary film. <laughs> and, and at the time, Sheila Nevins was the head of documentary in HBO. And wow, she said, no way, no way. It's impossible. No, you have to tell the story in two hours. I'm sure you can do it. And I told her, yes, of course, you always can cut, but... You can't imagine what we have shot, and uh, we need to do it in eight hours. That's the right format. We have to do it. And HBO said, no, 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 no way. And so we, we, um, we have to withdraw with, from HBO to find other support, and uh, that was a very uh, risky uh, path. As I was, uh, can you imagine to say no to HBO. <laughs> and well, there weren't a lot of alternatives at the time either, I would think. Exactly. Like there, were, there weren't the 19 different no, streaming services exactly. that you could exactly. go to. Exactly. And that was quite difficult. And uh, we, we put our, our own uh, little uh, production in, in, uh, in risk. And, um, but I knew, I was totally convinced that there was only one way to tell that story. And we will, we will convince many broadcasters all around the world to buy the eight hours documentary and to run it in that format. And thanks, I don't know who, but thanks, <laughs> we succeed. Uh, but um, yes, to really answer to you, your question, today it's more easier to find a place to sell this kind of long-term documentary series. And it's, I think, uh, uh, I'm quite happy that to be able to, uh, to watch uh, Making a Murderer, to watch uh, The Jinx, to watch uh, uh, The Keepers. Uh, of course, the huge difference, because it's very difficult to do a, a good documentary series because as I said when you start filming you don't know what will happen and uh, you never can be really sure that you will get all the material to do a six hours eight hours or ten hours uh, documentary series and if you take uh, making a murderer uh, in fact the two filmmakers they start shooting, shooting, shooting during months, months, and years. 
before going to Netflix and saying, well, I think we had a very good show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the difficulties uh, now, it's quite difficult to say, okay, I, we are going to start to shoot and I will d deliver to you a, eight, a very strong eight hours documentary series because that's quite difficult. to. Uh, or if you knew the end before starting shooting that something is wrong there. <laughs> you can't, you can't. And so I know to shape a documentary series like a drama, that's, I think, it's good. It's very exciting. And uh, when we start, when we cut Starcase, uh, it, it was really, uh, yes, really exciting to do it as a drama. Uh, but we really had the material to do it and to stay really in the rules of a documentary film that, of course, you are not staging anything. You are shooting what is in front of your camera. And that's very important. And you, you always have to keep that in mind. It's cinema verite. And the beauty of the documentary, it's because you, you are capturing the life that must have gotten more difficult as you became more and more intimate with David Rudolph and Michael Peterson. I mean, these are people that you've now known for uh, going on uh, 15, 20 years, particularly as you came back to the film now. Now that these people are a big part of your life, a big part of your career, would there additional challenges and feeling like, oh, I'm not staging this or I'm not influencing it simply by being here? Yes, it's a very good question because the main question about documentary is the point of view and the distance you keep between you, filmmaker, and the subject. And uh, you have always uh, to keep the right distance. And during the last five years of shooting, I have to say, with Michael Peterson, with David Rudolph, it has been more and more difficult to keep the right distance. Because, of course, as you said, uh, we, in a way, we were friends, and um, it, it was really difficult to tell them, okay, you are seeing me as a friend, but I have also a film to do. And if I really want to shoot and to do a good film, I have to keep the right distance. And uh, I can't be your friend. Or I may be your friend, but I have always to keep in mind that when I'm doing an interview of Michael Peterson, that that guy who is in front of me may have killed his wife. And I don't know that. But I have always to keep that in, in my mind until the end because that distance is really, really, really important. And to stay at the right distance during 15 years has been quite difficult. Did the fact that the case had become famous 
make it different when you return to film in the courtroom during Peterson's Alford plea. Like I was unaware of this case when it was happening the first time. Now, because of the success of the original staircase, this is a big case that people are interested in. Uh, the media is interested in it. It's a big deal. It seems like for the local prosecutors in Durham, like this is their famous case. How did that change your filmmaking as you returned to the story? Well, of course. And uh, when we came back in December 2011, we were surprised because, in a way, now we were part of the story. We were not just watching the story, filming the story, but we were in the story too. And David Rudolph asked us some clips and uh, he have shown during the hearing in 2011 clips that we have shot uh, eight years before. And so we were filming David Rudolph showing some images we shot. <laughs> and yes, we were, in a way, we were part of the story. And in 2014, in 2016 and 17, and especially in 17, during the last appearance of Michael Peterson in a courtroom, of course, Everyone were looking at us as we should have been there. We, we, we had to be there. That the judge, the DA, uh, Michael Peterson uh, or, uh, or David Rudolph, in a way, their agenda were set up to be sure that we could be present in North Carolina to shoot the last hearing. And that's why also Candance, uh, Kathleen's sister, at the last hearing where, when she, uh, she spoke about the film, about the documentary film, about us, about the way we supposedly have treated her. And uh, of course, I kept that testimony in the film because that was important, because we were in everyone's mind, in all the characters of the story. And uh, yes, as I said, we were totally part of the story. How do you feel when, I'm assuming this happens, people approach you and want to discuss whether Michael Peterson is guilty or not. What's it like for you, not with a camera running, but just in your day-to-day -day life when people have seen The Staircase and want to talk about the guilt or innocence of its main character with the person who spent many years with him? Uh, maybe uh, I have heard the question, what do you think? <laughs> what do you really <laughs> believe what is your deep conviction about the case about michael peterson i've heard that question maybe uh, 500 times <laughs> because <laughs> no because of course and i can understand i spent 15 years more than 15 years with in a way with michael peterson and uh, during the maybe the first 8 years of the case 
I don't remember a day where I didn't ask myself that question. And I, I became really obsessed by what happened that night. What happened to Kathleen Peterson? It's really a mystery, but I, I, I really want to understand. I really want to know. And I'm sure I will know what happened. But at the end, no, I don't know. And I have to live with that. And that's also the beauty of life, that sometimes there are still mysteries and uh, you don't know. So when people are asking me, uh, what is your conviction? Why, why, why do you know? Why, why do you feel? I have to say maybe that I'm not sure that I know more today than I knew the first day I met him. And <laughs> it's maybe uh, uh, incredible to say that, but um, I really don't know. And uh, of course, I will feel more comfortable if he is innocent, because uh, we, we spent so many hours, so many days, so many weeks Uh, together, uh, and uh, I never really got the feeling that he could have killed Kathleen, because if it's a murder, it's really a barbaric murder. Uh, if it's a murder, he had to kill her in a very barbaric manner. It's not just you push someone in the stairs. No, you beat someone until the death and well it's quite really difficult to believe that Michael Peterson could have done that but again I was not there that night and it's really difficult to know someone uh, very well and to say I know he didn't do it. No, that's impossible to say that. <sighs> so, we have to live with that mystery. Well, it speaks to the limitations of the justice system itself that you could have dedicated 15 years to this and been there, seen everything, and you still feel like, I'm not sure I know any more about his guilt than I did the day I met him. When you've shown this, um, these films internationally outside of the U.S., do you get different reactions um, from non-Americans than Americans? Yes, sometimes the, the reaction of uh, people outside the um, U.S., there are some more criticism against the U.S. legal system because yeah, what do you see? You, you, you see a, a guy who's, who spent $800,000 to defend himself and, uh, well, he has been found guilty and he has been found guilty because maybe the main character of the prosecution lied inside the courtroom and perjured himself Wow. So you, you have someone who spent, again, $800,000. He spent eight years in prison. And uh, why? Because someone uh, lied and someone 
prosecution expert, uh, someone who you are supposed to trust someone like, like him. And he lied, and that's why you, you, you spent eight years in prison. And at the end, well, what do you get? You, you get a deal where you have to plead guilty. <laughs> and, uh, but you plead guilty, and you are not guilty. Well, 15 years for that, okay. <laughs> and and, and uh, the state spent what? Spent maybe one or two million dollars. And in the other hand, you will have people saying, okay, but look at it. The system works because, okay, a mistake has been made, but the mistake has been repaired. Okay. Michael Peterson uh, has been released. Yes, he spent eight years in prison, but there is no perfect system and justice has been done. So it's really interesting to hear what people have to say. And of course, the reaction may have a little bit different outside than in the US. You described um, murder on a Sunday morning as, you know, getting lucky in a way and or like lightning striking and uh clearly uh you got lucky again with the staircase and getting a story that could uh extend over a decade what are you doing now are you looking for another a third lightning strike or well um... <laughs> to to tell you that really what happened that after the end of the the first 8 hours of staircase in 2005 when I really said I finished the first eight hours of Staircase, I'm done with documentaries. I am done. I, I can't do it anymore because it's, it's too stressful. It's too... Uh, it's been really difficult. And, uh, mm. and so I moved to drama. I wrote uh, scripts and I shot different drama for the theater and the feature film and and drama for television but staircase was the only <laughs> documentary i was following uh, and uh, i accept to follow of course um, but we in the last two years i said to myself okay maybe it's time to go back and to look at maybe another story, uh, but not as a director, but maybe as a executive producer. And, um, and we try to find a story to do a documentary series. And uh, we find a story in Boston. We start shooting two years ago. And uh, nothing what we were expecting happened. Nothing at all. And, <laughs> and uh, we were supposed to do eight hours, and uh, it, it may be difficult to do the eight hours we were supposed to do uh, because uh, that's the life of a documentary storyteller. Again, you never can be sure what will happen, and uh, especially in the justice system. And also because you are not anymore a just short little French crew with three people <laughs> going to Durham, but you are someone who is known and, uh, and of course it changed things. Today when I go to see uh, lawyers or prosecutor or a judge, 
in the U.S., they are more, maybe more, um, not so more open to us. Yeah, I would think that as true crime becomes more popular as a um, media format, that ultimately prosecutors may say having a documentary film about this case is inherently to the benefit of the defense, even if the film mm. is fair. Yes. Um, simply the uh, the attention is helpful for a defendant. Yeah, yeah. We had a case. We wanted to shoot a case, a very interesting case, uh, and we start shooting. And because the prosecution, they, they knew we were shooting, they prefer to drop the case than to go to mm. trial. And they dropped the <laughs> <Wow>. case. <laughs> so they ruined your documentary while yes. uh, helping out the person you were making the documentary about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, wow. I had not even thought about that potential uh, eventuality. Um, for you, there's been uh, part the first eight hours of uh, The Staircase, and then you did the first update, and now the final update in which Michael Peterson is now out of jail, which... I would think means that was the last one, unless, I mean, never say never, I guess, with a story like this. But assuming that you are done mm -hmm. with the staircase, how is it to say goodbye to this? Uh, is it still something you think about? Do you stay in touch with any of the people? Yes. Uh, yes, of course. I stay uh, uh, in contact with David Rudolph. I, I've seen him three times since last July, uh, in fact, and I, I kept in touch with uh, Michael Peterson. He's still living in Durham in the same apartment. And um, the last day of shooting, I knew that was the last day of shooting. And of course, there was mixed feeling there. There was a feeling of relief, a huge relief, because I, I felt I was tied to the case. I was tied to these characters. I knew I had to do it. And the fact that it was finished, it was a, a huge relief. But also there was kind of sadness too, because um, I didn't know. Uh, well, I knew maybe I will never see again Michael Peterson uh, of other people. And that was... Uh, a kind of um, really joyful and sad moment, of course, but again, huge relief. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. That was great to talk to you. And that was the long-form podcast. Thank you very much to Jean-Xavier de Lestrade. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thank you to our intern, Louisa Garbowit. And of course, thank you to the incredible people who help make this show possible at MailChimp and Pit Writers. You can always send us an email, podcast at longform.org. We totally appreciate it if anyone uh, would rate us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere. Anywhere you see us, rate us, leave a review. It helps people find out about the show. 
which is a good thing. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.